I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 6. We'll study together verses 20 through 23. Romans 6, verses 20 through 23. This is a letter of the Apostle Paul, pastorally written to a very diverse church in the city of Rome. It's a church under fire, and it's a church that is doctrinally divided. And as he writes this, his intention is unity in the Spirit of Christ. He wants to instruct them. Some commentators have looked on this book and have said, wow, this is a biblical, systematic theology. And friends, I wouldn't call it such. I would instead say that this is doctrine for life. Doctrine for life. And here in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul has turned after this, his great discourse on the doctrine of justification by faith, specifically to possible errors that the grace of Christ might then rear in a confused heart of a Christian. And so we'll study it together this morning. Let us read God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. For when you were slaves of sin, you were set, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, The fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, is the law of the Lord, and sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Let's pray together. Lord God, you speak and the earth trembles. Oh Lord, make it that we would sit beneath your word and not over it in judgment. Oh Lord, may its light shine into the depths of who we are. And would you give us a true and adequate visitation of our own waywardness. Oh Lord, that we would turn away from sin and unto Your Son in repentance. O Heavenly Father, we ask that we would hear Your Word and receive it. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. What has sin to do with the Christian life? It's a very simple question. And most Christians would obviously say, absolutely nothing. And that's a right answer. But there is a reality about every single one of us is that we have received, if we are a Christian, the grace of Jesus that washes us from our guilt of sin, from the lordship of sin and the death that it produces. But we are yet in sinful flesh and we struggle. Any of you want to raise your hand and say that you have no sin? My hands are firmly placed in my pockets regarding the question. And Paul is concerned. He knows us. He knows we struggle. And He knows that if we're Christians and we have Christ and we also have sinful flesh that we are prone to err and convince ourselves 
and to give ourselves excuses for the sins in which we delight rather than our delighting in Christ. And so here in chapter 6, he turns to the congregation of the beloved in the city of Rome. And in verse 1 and verse 15, he poses to them questions of utmost importance, questions that derive from his sensitivity that Christians are easily confused. In verse 15, he says, What then are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? There in verse 1, you have almost exactly the same question, but then repeated, and he dives into those two things in this chapter and in these last few verses as he wraps up his, uh, his teaching regarding these. We have our verses this morning, verses 20 through 23. And there are two things uh, that I believe that the Apostle Paul lays clearly before us as Christians, things that I want to consider with you this morning. The first of them in verses 20 and 21 is that sin demands everything and gives nothing. Sin demands everything and gives nothing. Verses 20 and 21. Verses 22 and 23. Grace demands nothing and gives everything. Grace demands nothing and gives Everything. Just as I mentioned a moment ago, the apostle is concerned about a confused heart within the Christian. He's concerned that the Christian will know that he has received grace and that that grace has availed much regarding the punishment of sin. And he's concerned that the Christian will then, within their sinful flesh, turn that into an opportunity to sin. A free license where the perverted and contorted logic of a sinful person might simply think like this. Well, I know I'm not going to have to pay the price. So then does that mean I can do all I want? I'll be forgiven anyway. And you may say as a Christian, well, I don't ever go there. I don't ever go there. I'm a Presbyterian and I'm Reformed and this is something that I know better than and I wage war against that in my heart. And I say, brother and sister in Christ, child of God, amen. Praise the Lord. But this is a passage for self-examination where we are intended to question our hearts and seek out the reason why we sin. And here we're also given a reason why we are free from its lordship And it's rule. And I think it's so wonderful that as we come to this passage, we're given a simple opportunity to consider the state of our souls in Christ and not apart from Him. This is a word to Christians, to people who have been redeemed. It's a word for me. It's a word for you. In the previous verses to our sermon text, the Apostle Paul introduces a very profoundly biblical ideal. It's an analogy. And it's the analogy that Jesus Himself has used in John's Gospel. And that is the slavery of sin. Christ in John chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, Christ in speaking to the Pharisees said this, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. And it's as if the, the apostle knows the text and he takes it right up and he puts it into service as he pastors this little flock of Christians. And what is he really trying to get at? Well, it's, it's this idea that oftentimes, whenever Christians consider grace, they can write themselves excuses to get comfortable with a lifestyle that engages in and coddles sin. As if it's a free and an open option. It's one of the varieties on the buffet of a spiritual life. I'm forgiven. I don't have to worry about it. Yet I can do it. I can sin boldly. I can sin freely. I can sin, well, brazenly. And Paul is saying that's not safe. It's not good. And in verse 20, he tells us about the character of sin in the life of a person. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now, if you've heard me read that and read along with me, you may have, as any credible reader would, a little bit of a question. And so I want to take this one verse in its parts. In the first portion, you have again there Paul making use of this analogy to slavery. Earlier, a few verses back, he says this is a human term because of our natural limitations, verse 19. And it's not a perfect analogy, but it is one that we need to consider and actually ask ourselves, hang on a minute, what's going on here? How can you be a slave to sin, yet free from righteousness? Slavery, I think all of us are quite familiar with it as an ideal, certainly as a historical fact, but I would dare say none of us have likely experienced it, probably will not experience it, at least socially or physically. Yet Paul is saying it's a spiritual reality for every man, woman, and child. But slavery is the ownership of a person by someone else. That sin, as it were, is slavery in the life of a person head-to-toe, unquestionable obedience of a person to sin as its slave master. Now this is a quite obvious point, but I'll go ahead and present it to you nonetheless. And that is, slavery and a slave is not a hired laborer. A slave has not got rights. A slave is called, pressed, forced, to absolute obedience to their master. And there is no question about the slave's own desires or designs or emancipation. The slave is, as it were, a piece of property. It is their duty to simply obey. And really, they have no word in regard to law and no word in regard to their own Freedom, they are simply to do as they are told. There is another spectacular truth about slavery and that it's not profitable. The slave does not receive, as it were, pay in the form of financial remuneration. The slave, generally speaking, 
would have a master that provided for them food. Possibly lodging of some sort, with the whole goal that the slave not entirely die. It just doesn't make good sense if you're allowing your owned property to then pass before it has made a profitable gain for the slave master. It's really very simple. And I think this is something that, yes, we know historically was a fact. Yes, we know, at least theoretically, that this happened, but we have to wrestle with it because it's a part of Paul and the analogy that Christ himself put into play regarding sin and the person. He is saying in essence this, Christian, sin is slavery. It's not to be trifled with. It will demand everything of you, every thought, every energy, every ounce of vitality, all the joys that you could have, all your freedom, all of it, all of it belongs to sin. Not an ounce of who you are will be free from it. Sin's not an indifferent act. Sin is not an indifferent act, Christian. That's what he's saying. It's demanding Absolutely. And it intends to take over you and the whole of your person and in the whole of your soul. And it is a cruel and exacting master. But then the second part of verse 20, we have this phrase that admittedly within its context is a bit confusing. You were slaves. And when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And this sounds contradicting and it's confusing, but there is no contradiction within the text. What's Paul referring to? How could it be that you're a slave of sin to obey all of the demands of a slave master, to complete the slave master's designs and to be exploited totally by them and by sin? How could that be? And yet you're free to righteousness, to do whatever righteousness would would demand. That's not what Paul means here. He's not saying that while you were a slave to sin, you were free to do righteousness, but rather you were free from righteousness as a master. Righteousness had no authority over you. Righteousness had no rule in your life. You had no ability or capacity because of the totality of sin's rule to obey righteousness in any of its articles. And it's staggering. He's saying to you simply this, when you are a slave of sin, righteousness is not even an option. It's not an option. And so then again, Christian, what is he pointing at? He's pointing at this, that you can't play with sin and pretend to be able to then do righteousness A life of rebellion against God cannot obey His holy design. It's black and it's white. That's why this is a two-point sermon. It's a hard line. And Christian, the sin in your life, what has sin to do with the Christian life? You must say, absolutely nothing. It can have nothing to do with me and it must be absolutely put to death. It must be war. It must be absolute and total Turning away from sin. 
because sin will demand everything of you and ultimately it will give nothing to you. In verse 21, Paul continues in this line of thought, this illustration of slavery, and he asks a question to his reader, and you and I ought to ask it to our own souls, and it's very simple. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? The outcome of all those things is death. It's a really wonderful question. Because he knows that as his readers and as Christians hear his teaching, they're going to be wrestling inevitably with this thing about wanting to sin and wanting to feel free to sin and to play with sin and to then also be a Christian. I can sin the six other days of the week and then on the Lord's Day I can get right. I can come, I can turn, I can have my own form of Protestant confession and absolution. And I can, in essence, live a life like the world every other day, but on the Lord's Day I'm His. A conflicted life. Paul's already said, well, that won't work out for you long. You're going to go back into the cold, hard, exacting chains of the slavery of sin. But then he simply said, what did you get from it? What was the gain? What was the sweet fruit hanging upon the dead tree of sin? Did you get anything? What was the profit? What was the blessing? And he answers his own question and it's very clear and it's Startling and absolutely terrifying. What fruit were you getting from the things that you are now ashamed of, those sins in your life? Nothing. For the end of those things is death. For the end of those things is death. And you and I, friends, need to look at this because this is a text that stands... As truth in the face of a world that lies, we're told, we're taught, catechized by our TVs, our cell phones, our media, the wickedness of our own soul that delights to believe the lie that if you sin, you'll have what you really need. You'll have the fullness of yourself. You'll have your own truth. You'll be self-affirmed and self-fulfilling. And the world, if you just are who you are, just embrace your identity. It's really who you are. This person molded after a lifestyle and a self-identification with the cold chains and slavery of sin that you will be fulfilled and you'll live a more full life and you'll be more happy and more blessed and everything will be good. Your prosperity will be a life of sinful hedonism. And it'll be wonderful. Just be tolerant. Just come out of the closet. Let your eye follow her. You're made with biological needs and she looks beautiful. He looks incredibly handsome. Let your mind go to that place. You're a biological person. Look late at night at those screens and click through the page. It's what's best for you. It's entirely fine. It's going to make your life better now. And it's a lie. And Paul is saying, Christian, all of those things, all of that sin... It can't give you life. It will never affirm you. It will never fill you. You will never, you will never receive benefit from it. 
It's going to take and pick at you and it's going to cut at you and it's going to take its ounce of flesh. It's going to exploit you. It's going to enslave you. It's going to rule you. It's going to make you miserable. And it's going to take all the things in your life, all the things that you have by the life of Christ, and it's going to chisel away at those little by little by little until it has its ultimate goal, your death. Sin wants to kill you, Christian. It wants to kill you. And it aims to get its goal consistently. There's nothing for you within it. I'd like to share with you a little illustration from the pages of church history. You may have heard of this guy, pastor in the North African town of Hippo, Augustine, our dear brother of First Presbyterian Church Hippo. He wrote this book, Confessions where he was concerned to lay forward his own struggle with sin. His own life of wrestling with the question, what has sin to do with the Christian life? It's a famous story. He says, we carried off a huge load of pears, he and some of his friends. We carried off a huge load of pears, not to eat ourselves, but to dump out to the hogs. After barely tasting some of them ourselves. You see, doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved my own undoing, not that thing for which I sinned, but I loved the sin itself. A depraved soul falling away from security in God to destruction in itself, seeking nothing from the shameful deed but shame itself. What can your sins give you? What can your sin give you? Nothing. The rage released upon another will not give you satisfaction or calm. The lack of intimacy you feel because of your own sinfulness then lashed out to have intimacy with another will not give you the intimacy you desire. It's going to tear you down and it's going to destroy you. And you cannot play with sin. It'll put you in deadly chains, Christian. Second thing we see from Paul as he transitions from verse 21... This wonderful truth. Grace demands nothing and it gives everything. Grace demands nothing and it gives everything. And you see the transition. Verse 22. But now, let me just say, I know your pastors are teaching you to read your Bibles well and that you all are Bible scholars. If you see a but in the Bible, you better take attention. It's important. The buts of the Bible should always make you listen up and Dig in. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Just take a moment to notice. Again, I remind you, Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing to you. 
He's writing to me. He's not writing to just the world. This is a letter to the church. He's talking about their present state as Christians. He's returning to the question, what has sin to do with the Christian life? And that's echoing in the ears of Christians for them to answer. And he's saying to them and to you and to me, he's saying very simply this, right now, Christian, you have been set free from sin. Right now. And you may say, Pastor, I kind of get the arc here. You've painted sin in some very stark and terrifying terms. You told us, you know, basically a tablespoon will kill you. Are you teaching some kind of perfectionism here this morning? No, friends. I'm teaching you the wonderful truth that Jesus Christ died to set you free from sin and that sin is no longer your master. That's right now. Its authority cannot demand your obedience now. I believe in progressive sanctification. I don't believe you're going to be entirely sanctified right now. But I believe you don't have to obey sin, hell, and Satan now, but that you're required to obey Christ now. And you say, well, pastor, that's really hard. You're saying a big thing. And yes, friend, yes, I absolutely am. But I want to tell you where the hope is there. How many of you have a sin that you've been struggling with for a decade? How many of you sinned on the way to church this morning? You said, I'm going to, I'm going to bear it right into the service. And it's right now, it's on your heart. And you can just, you know what it is. And you're saying, I don't know if I'm ever going to be free from this. And you want to be because you love Jesus and you love the Lord and you're burdened by your sin. And it's been with you all week long and it's been with you last month and last year, 10, 20 years. And you're just thinking, I'm never going to get rid of this. It's a thorn in my flesh and it's got barbs and I'm, I'm stuck with it and there's no hope and I'm hopeless. And I'm going to bear this until Christ sanctifies me in glory entirely head to toe. I don't want it gone now. It hurts me. It hurts me. My prayer life is distracted with it. It comes out and it's on my wife, my kids, my husband, my friends. And it's, it hurts. And I want to be free of it. I want to tell you that right now, in this second of your Christian life, you are free from its demands to obedience. You don't have to do it. You are free from its demands. Sin is not your Lord. It is not your master. At all. And this is good news. Because it means that your salvation is not a theoretical status of not guilty held until the day whenever it becomes real. But that now Jesus is in every way your King, your Lord, your Master. And that the things that hurt you, that destroy things in your life, you absolutely have every reason to cling to Him in faith knowing that He has died to cleanse you from it now. You as well as I know that you won't see the full relief and release of all of your sin and all of your sinful affections in this life that there will be a sanctifying effect of the work of glorification when He comes. But you've got sharp tools to kill sin. 
effective tools and Christ has placed them in your hands, that if you are no longer a slave of sin and you are a slave of Christ, that you should know that your master is a man of war and he always has been and he's always waged war against your sin. So serious that Christ would take nails and be punished unto death for you. You are not alone in the battle of sin. You have one that has gone before you and has equipped you to put the old man to death and to cut off the flesh and to drink from the brook of the newness of life in Christ by faith now. That is such good news, Christian. That's not a heavy, arduous, terrible, wicked, difficult command. It's a wonderful thing. You know, Paul takes this human terminology in saying that you're no longer a slave to sin, but enslaved to God. And you say, hang on a second, from chains to chains, that doesn't sound like a good exchange. Your master is not exacting. Your master is filled with love. Your master has given his son for you and is pleased to look you in the face as if a father has each hand on each cheek and to look you in the eyes and say, I love you, son. I love you, daughter. You're mine. You're not in the slave's house and in the slave's quarters. You're at the the father's table. There are no scraps. There's only fine fare. And it's the body of the sacrificed lamb and it's yours. The language of slavery speaks to the wonderful truth of His authority. Who is it that you're called Christian to obey? Well, it's very, very, very simple. It is the Lord of glory who loved you and gave His Son for you. Who made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him you might become the righteousness of God. That's your Lord. And then Paul turns as if we've got different sides of a coin or a mirror reflection to the first two verses in this section. And it's not only the reality of being free from sin and a slave of God, but now he talks about the fruit and he tells you what the fruit is. And it's that you do get fruit. First off, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. And you may read along with me and if I were to ask you, what are the fruits there? And you'd say, well, there are are two. There's sanctification, there's eternal life. And I would say, yes, certainly. But those are the things to which the fruits of righteousness lead. Let me suggest to you that we can't exhaust this wonderful body of gifts and profit and fruit that God gives to the Christian, but I can tell you a few fulfillment and joy and gladness and happiness and peace in the person of His Son, in the presence of God, in the the security of the Holy Spirit, in the power to wage war with sin, in the shelter of His wing, in the fellowship of the saints and the family of the household of faith. All of those things, fruits and gifts and payments and wonderful gifts of a life lived in the righteousness of Christ as we imitate Him. Its goal, its end, its ultimate fruits are these two, these wonderful things. Sanctification, and you know what that means, but in a simple way to say it, it would be this, to be even more like God than that which is inscribed in your flesh. 
to think like God, talk like God, love like God, all the affections of your soul and the very things that would please you, all of those things deriving from Him. So that you're holy like He is holy. And the testimony of the Scriptures should not frighten the heart of the Christian that no one will see God unless He is holy. And you say, as a Christian, oh, I'll finally finally have a place where the culture and the thoughts of my heart are at home in Him and with Him. But it's also eternal life. You know, I told you that those gifts are life-affirming, life-giving and sustaining. And Paul is saying, and it's a life that can never be touched. He's saying to you, Christian, yes, all the weight of those sins, those things that you must wage war against, the things you're free from, the things that give death. He's saying, Christian, you should know the security you have in Christ. And the gift, it comes only through Him. The Christian has to say, Amen, where's my sword? I know I have a shield. The Christian must say, where is the battle banner? My shoes are strapped for the waging of war. In verse 23, the apostle wraps up this chapter. And there he paints the terms in black and white and opposing clear testimony. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Two things I want to say in closing from that text is this. Sin is always going to give you your wage. You're always going to get what you earned. It's exacting and it's fair. And the thing that sin earns you always is the wrath of God and death. And that's a heavy, terrifying truth But for you, Christian, the grace of God is no wage. It is not what you deserve. It is not a payment for anything you have done or could do or failed to do. Not at all, but the free gift of God is eternal life. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That which you never labored for, He has given you. And when you fail to labor and fall over, He will not readily retract it. Salvation was given freely, not only in theory, but in the dripping wounds of an agonized Lord who breathed His last and laid for three days and yet has been raised again and lives in glory. And who's coming again? Christian, are you ready for the battle? You are secure. And He has given you freedom and strength and blessedness to put sin to death. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the multitude of your graces to us. You're a fountain of mercy. Your love is inexhaustible. And our Savior reigns forever. Lord, we pray that you would bring us 
into personal knowledge of these truths and that these truths would be for us spiritual life and freedom and joy and fulfillment. Make us strong, O Lord. O Lord, that we would live against this world and against the flesh and live in Christ Jesus. We pray in his holy name. Amen.